Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the never-ending struggle, a program we're on. We look at the uh, the endless, seemingly endless, uh, passage of Catholic history from uh, the time of our Lord until today, the triumphs and tragedies of the Catholic Church, and we try to uh, have them inspire you, me, and everybody else in this current age with what uh, our fathers did in days of yore. Now, tonight, we're going to do something very funny. We're going to bring past, present, and future all together for you. And not just that. We're going to bring the very ends of the earth into your own home. And contrary wise, allow you to zero in on your own past and your own future. That sounds very complex, doesn't it? Well, it is. Because what we're going to look at tonight is a portion of the church's uh, liturgical year. We're going to look at the feasts of autumn. Now, before we uh, go into the main uh, the main uh, narrative, as you might say, there are a few things we have to lay down. All of us uh, who are Catholic and live in the world actually operate under two different calendars, the secular and the religious calendar. Now, these have certain connections at different points, which we'll touch on, but they are distinct. Um, the secular year, as you know, has four seasons, spring, summer, autumn, or fall, and winter. They have 12 months, beginning with January, February, March, April, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. And then, voila! Along comes baby new year, and you're in a new year. Now, the church year in the, the, the Catholic church here is a bit different. Uh, for one thing, it's new year's uh, varies from right to right. The earliest is the Byzantine rite, and the new liturgical year in the Byzantine rite begins on September 1st. Um, the last to come rolling in is the Roman Rite, the, uh, the Latin Rite, which is the first Sunday in Advent, which is usually the uh, last Sunday in November, the one closest to uh, November 30th. In between the early bird and the late comer, the other rites of the church, Armenian, Maronite, Syriac, Chaldean, Coptic, etc., etc., they come in at different times between those two and that so the the uh, schema for the most part we'll be looking at tonight is that of the latin rite but we will mention a little bit about the uh feast of the byzantine rite when i feel like it <laughs> that's the only real criteria here ladies and gentlemen if i feel like it that's what we're gonna do so uh having said all of that the um interaction between the uh, uh, civil year and the religious year is primarily in the United States anyway. Uh, other countries like Austria, where I'm sitting, they do a lot more. But obviously, in every country, there are religious holidays and there are civil holidays. Depending upon the nature of the regime, uh, there'll be more or less of the religious holidays that are also civil holidays. In our country, given its uh, non or 
anti or whatever Catholic nature. Uh, the only uh, federal religious holidays we get are Christmas and but not for uh, not for religious reasons. And that's about it. Good Friday is a half a day, uh, I think, for the feds. And then in Louisiana and a few other places, the Epiphany is actually a holiday. And uh, in Louisiana, All Saints Day is a state holiday. Anyway, so that's that's where we are as far as where they come together. Now, the basic shape of the church here is that uh, Advent is the first portion, beginning, as I say, for, the, for us Latins. The beginning of our year is the first Sunday in Advent. Now, this uh, goes on until Christmas. Uh, you have the season of Christmas that begins with Christmas Day and will continue. Um, well, thanks to the changes after Vatican II, it gets a little squirrely. But it used to be, in the early days, we considered Christmas lasted, in a sense, until Candlemas. Uh, but liturgically, you had the season after the Epiphany, which is the Sundays of the Epiphany, which is called uh, the first few Sundays in ordinary time in the post-1969 uh, calendar. Um then after the, uh, although it's part of ordinary time and the other one, um, after the Sundays out of the Epiphany, you had the three Sundays of the season of Septuagesima, which was a preparation for Lent. Uh, then you had, and have in both calendars, Lent, which comes to, it starts with Ash Wednesday and comes to a screeching halt on Holy Saturday. Uh, before 1955, Lent was held to end at the uh, at the uh, uh, Saturday morning vigil service. Now it's held to end in the evening with the same service, whose time has changed from Holy Saturday morning into the evening. Well, then you get the season after Easter. Paschal Tide, which lasts up until Pentecost. Now, here again, there's a little bit of trickiness because in the newer calendar, it's the Sundays after, or the Sundays of ordinary time, all the way to the first Sunday in Advent. Traditionally, it was the Sundays after Pentecost, and in the Anglican Ordinariate, in keeping with the uh, difference with the Saramite, the difference shared with certain other dioceses in Europe, rather than doing the, the rest of the Sundays of the year after Pentecost, they were after Trinity. So there you go, the Sundays after Trinity. Now, where are we with all of this with autumn? Well, religiously speaking, autumn, most of autumn, starting in, we'll say, September 1st, uh, although that's the very beginning of the Byzantine calendar. Uh, it's the Sundays after Pentecost as far as the church is concerned. Now, before we launch into a consideration of each of the months, 
which we'll do shortly. Let's take a quick look at what autumn is for the secular mind, because that it has a bearing. It's partly fed by the religious calendar, again, as we'll see. Uh, Country-wise, the whole mood of autumn does color how we experience the feasts of the year. So, in northern climes, in New England and New York and various other places like that, uh, as September makes way for October, the leaves change. That, of course, is one of the big things. Uh, autumn is first ushered in by back to school and Labor Day. No wearing white after Labor Day, right? And then we'll, we'll have the back to school stuff. The kids are rushing off. But something else has happened, and like just like you've got Christmas creep, where Christmas stuff begins to appear in stores and all that earlier and earlier. In um, the in uh, recent years, we've had Halloween creep, so you begin to see Halloween things in the stores uh, as early as the last uh, week in July. Which, all right, fine. It's it's a little weird, but there it goes. Um, Although I, I have a theory that it's not simply uh, store people cashing in. Life, you know, ladies and gentlemen, has gotten so unpleasant and difficult in so many ways. And Halloween and Christmas being, for most people, certainly most Americans, associated with some of the most pleasant times. I think that part of it is a psychological need for escape from the horrors of the present into the past. And I, I do believe that's what's behind both holidays creeping ever earlier. And in the case of Christmas, uh, which is another time for another day, holding on longer than it used to. That I'm very much in favor of. Not all that keen on the Christmas or Halloween creep, but I like Christmas holding on. Anyway, so the days grow colder, they grow shorter. Uh, the pumpkin spice latte starts popping up in the Starbucks. Uh, the autumn leaves, as I've said, become a staple of decoration. Uh, and this goes on through September and October. Um, the uh, In the West Coast, in Southern California, where I've spent most of uh, my life, September is often the hottest month. So apart from the Halloween decorations at the stores, you know, it doesn't feel very automated. But eventually, in October, November, sometimes a little later, uh, eventually, autumn comes in the form of bright, bright, rich blue skies and golden sepia-toned sunlight as though you were in someone else's memory. Either way, ladies and gentlemen, autumn is a wonderful time of year. And now, when we come back, we'll explore September on the church calendar. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Great to have you. Uh, well, as you'll recall, we were about to launch into a consideration of September uh, in the liturgical year. Now, on the 
temporal cycle. It's ever so many Sundays after after uh, Pentecost in September. But there's a lot more going on. I jocularly referred to Labor Day and not wearing white after Labor Day. And it's true, Labor Day is considered in many places the end of the summer. But it's um, very much an American and a Canadian phenomenon. We move on a little bit and we, be, we come to the uh, Marian feast uh, on the September the 12th, uh, sorry, September the 8th, uh, the uh, Nativity of Our Lady, the birthday of Our Lady. This is a really, really important feast, and up until the 50s, as a result, had an octave. The eight days afterwards were all very much a um, very much dedicated to uh, Our Lady, and liturgically, the uh, Nativity of Our Lady, which is also a feast of the Byzantine Rite, incidentally, uh, the Nativity of Our Lady was followed by the second day of the Nativity of the Nativity of Our Lady, third day, and so on to the eight days. Now, where where do you begin with the importance of this feast? Because truly, the beginning, the, the birth of Our Lady was the beginning of our salvation. And so it is a major feast. It's not celebrated on September 8th in all the rites of the church. It is in the Roman rite and the Byzantine rite. It's one of those things we have in common. And that includes the uh, Eastern Orthodox, incidentally. Other rites of the church celebrated, however, on other days. Um, two days later is a really, really important, um, uh, a really, really important feast because it's a saint. St. Nicholas of Tolentino, an Italian saint, who is considered one of the great patrons of the poor souls in purgatory. And so if you have anyone who's dead or, uh, well, and which is all of us, really, uh, be sure to pray to St. Nicholas of Tolentino for their, uh, for their relief after death. Now, September the uh, 12th is a great feast day. It's still within the active of the Nativity of Our Lady. It's the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary. Now, it commemorates a couple of interesting feasts, uh, sorry, not feasts, a couple of interesting occurrences. Uh, on that day in 1326, you had the Battle of Moray when the Albigensians were defeated. And you had also in 16, 1690s, I don't remember exactly when, the Battle of Zanta, when the Turks were defeated by the Austrians and the uh, Spanish and the Venetians and Portuguese. But the big commemoration on the feast of uh, the Holy Name of Mary and why it was extended to the uh, universal calendar was the defeat of the Turks at the siege of Vienna. Now this, of course, is a, a major event in Western history 
Because if Vienna had fallen to the Turks, there was literally nothing to keep them from the Rhine. Uh, there was no great power that would have been capable of doing so. Germany, of course, was uh, very chaotic after the Thirty Years' War. So the defeat of the Turks at the Siege of Vienna was a great blow for all of Christendom. And I believe it, it had a certain literary effect. Why do I mean that? Well, what happened was that the emperor left the city in command of the Prince von Stachenberg. And he, in turn, had a very junior commander, who we'll hear about again momentarily, who was a French nobleman, Prince Eugen of Savoy, Eugène de Savoy. And they were there besieged in Vienna by the Turks, and it looked as though the city was going to fall because of lack of provisions and so on. They were being starved out. And just when it seemed that they would have to surrender, suddenly they heard horns. And the horns were the horns of King Jan Sowiecki and the uh, Polish army, who through forced marches had come all the way from, from uh, their country and all unlooked for broke the siege of Vienna. The Turks fled, leaving behind uh, boxes of coffee beans. Prisoners taught the Austrians how to make coffee, and Vienna has been one of the great capitals of coffee culture ever since. They also invented a pastry to commemorate this victory, the crescent roll, or croissant, in the shape of a crescent. So whenever you find yourself drinking coffee and, croissant and eating a croissant, know that you're commemorating the siege. But it was a great victory, and it was due uh, entirely in the minds of the victors to the intervention of Our Lady. And so the Pope made this feast uh, a universal one. But there's more, because a few days later is the feast of the discovery of the, uh, the exaltation of the Holy Cross. Holy Cross and Harvest, the uh, discovery of the cross by uh, uh, the mother of Emperor Constantine. And it's a major feast for all sorts of people, but particularly, believe it or not, for knights. Because, of course, the cross was the symbol of the Crusaders. And all the orders of knights that we know, uh, the Knights of Malta, the Teutonic Knights, uh, the Tent Knights Templar, and all the rest. They made the cross their badge. It was the great symbol of Christian chivalry, of the willingness of the knight to sacrifice himself as our Lord did. One of the keynotes of chivalry was the imitation of Christ's, um, Christ's own declaration in the gospel, uh, greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. That was what the cross meant. That was what chivalry demanded of the medieval knight. And so to this day, in the existing orders of knighthood, the Feast of the Holy Cross, is, or Rudmus, is still a, uh, a major one. And it should be for us, too. Well, September keeps going on its way. And we have various saints uh, to, uh, toward the end of the month. But probably the most important saint of September after Our Lady 
the whole month, incidentally, being the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. I neglected to mention that uh, September the 7th, I think it's September the 7th, is uh, the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. And it's a uh, very important feast because, of course, Our Lady's suffering uh, over the death of her son, the death and torture of her son, is something that, while it redeemed us, it um, it certainly was very painful for her. And when we have our own sorrows and our own pains, it's important to remember that Our Lady suffered just the way we do. And we're not alone in that suffering. But September 29th is Michaelmas, the feast of St. Michael the Archangel. Now, up until 1969, uh, St. Gabriel and St. Raphael had their own feasts. Uh, but in 69, they all got uh, dumped in together uh, on St. Michael's Day in the new calendar. But at any rate, Michaelmas is a wonderful feast because it's a good time to redouble our, our devotion to St. Michael. You remember the St. Michael prayer that uh, used to be universal, still in a lot of places, or revived, said after low mass uh, for the defense of the church and the conversion of her enemies. Um, the contemplation of the angels is a very, very important thing. We don't think about them enough. We don't think about our guardian angels. We don't think about the part that the angels play in the governance of the universe. Uh, and certainly, we don't pray to them for their help. St. Michael, of course, is the chief of the angelic armies against the devil. Uh, he also uh, plays a role at death. He's the patron saint of France, and the Holy Roman Empire, and various other places. In fact, in France, he has a, uh, a feast on October the 6th. Uh, I believe the apparition of St. Michael at Mont Saint-Michel uh, in Normandy, the famous monastery on the semi-island of the sea. But St. Michael is the, the great hero. And we need to pray to him a lot these days. A lot. St. Gabriel, of course, um, He's very important as the messenger of God, brought the uh, message of the incarnation to Our Lady uh, and was, you know, just a marvelous being. St. Raphael gets the least press, the healer of God, the doctor, as it were. Uh, but we see him in the book of Tobit in the Bible. And he's traditionally taken as a patron by doctors and physicians, people like that, and also travelers. So you can pray to St. Christopher, but also don't forget to pray to St. Raphael when you're going on a trip. These, um, the angels with whom we share reality, shall we say, um, are our brothers, our older brothers. They were tested the way we are, uh, but they only needed to be tested once. And then, of course, they passed or they failed. They stayed loyal to God or they fell with Lucifer. Uh, demonology, of course, is a branch of angelology because 
the demons have retained uh, the a lot of the abilities of their angelic nature. But of course, they don't mean us any well uh, and never will, which is why it's all the more important to get to know their unfallen uh, counterparts. And especially, as I say, the guardian angel. Each of us has one. Several of us, by virtue of office or position in life, have two. Towns, states, countries all have guardian angels. And so we need to pray to all of them, especially today, uh, for relief. We'll be back, ladies and gentlemen, to look at October momentarily. out there. Uh, in New England, the decoration of houses with uh, scarecrows and uh, leaves and Indian corn and all that kind of thing becomes a real uh, contest, you might say. Every house tried to outdo every other. Um, apples come to mind and uh, the the apple cider, all that sort of thing, uh, really makes uh, October an enchanting month. But the feasts of October can't be forgot. Interestingly enough, the first uh, Monday in October is two days in uh, well, one in the United it's a holiday, a federal holiday of the United States, and it's a uh, Dominion holiday, I guess you would say, in uh, and if you wouldn't say it, then I will, in Canada. Uh, in Canada, it is Canadian Thanksgiving, uh, which is a, uh, where our Thanksgiving, which we'll talk about in the next segment, is very much bound up with the Puritans and all that. The Canadian Thanksgiving, which, because they're further north, and so their, their harvest was earlier. Uh, the Canadian Thanksgiving is very much a European-style harvest festival. And, of course, that's one of the dominant themes of autumn is the harvest. Um, something you don't see that much of here in a city, but at any rate, it becomes a big deal. And in, uh, in churches of all sorts, uh, depending on where you are, Catholic churches included, you'll have harvest festivals and all sorts of... Uh, pumpkins and squash and that kind of thing uh, around the altar. But the, um, the first of uh, Monday, the first Monday uh, in uh, the United States is the much maligned holiday of Columbus Day. Now, Columbus Day used to be 11th, uh, 11 October, regardless of the nearest Monday. That was the case up until 72. And Columbus Day, interestingly enough, is connected 
to another uh, Marian feast, believe it or not. And that Marian feast is uh, the feast of Our Lady of the Pillar, Nuestra Señora de Pilar, uh, which is the, uh, the feast commemorating the apparition of Our Lady to St. James the Apostle while she was still alive. He was in uh, Zaragoza, as they called it in his days, Caesar Augusta, in Aragon. And he hadn't made many of any converts, and he was about ready to pack it in when she appeared to him on top of a pillar and said, stick to it. Your Spaniards will come around eventually. Uh, you're doing an important work here. So he did. And, of course, we know Santiago uh, as the heir, sorry, as the patron of Spain. But when Columbus was off in the, uh, in the, off in the uh, ocean blue with his three ships, they were getting restive and mutinous. They were far from land. So he made a vow to Our Lady of the Pillar, whose feast was coming up, and he told his men if they didn't find land by the time her feast had come and gone, they would turn around and go back. But they did. And the day we call Columbus Day, is as a result also the day of Our Lady of the Pillar. So it's a very important link to the Marian nature of uh, the discovery of, of uh, the Americas and the fact that Columbus was such a devotee of Our Lady. And not the evil, terrible man of uh, academic myth and uh, moronic uh, stupidity, which you see a lot of these days. Idiots everywhere, not a, not a drop to think. Anyway, uh, now October the 7th is a major feast day. Our Lady of the Rosary is originally Our Lady of Victory, and it commemorates another great triumph which we owe to uh, Our Lady, and that is the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. Just as the Siege of Vienna broke the Ottomans on land, well, Lepanto broke them pretty much at sea. And except for the Barbary pirates, who they were they couldn't very well conquer anything, but they were adept at taking whole villages of Italians and Irish and Spaniards and Icelanders uh, as slaves back to North Africa. Other than that, uh, the Turkish threat was minimized because of Lepanto. And Lepanto uh, was, of course, immortalized uh, by G.K. Chesterton in the poem Lepanto, which is always worth reading when the feast rolls around. But uh, while originally called Our Lady of Victory, it is now called Our Lady of the Rosary. And the reason is that St. Pius V and Don John of Austria, who led the fleet against the Turks, and various other people involved prayed the rosary very hard and attributed the victory at Lepanto to the use of the rosary. But there's another Marian element to the victory at Lepanto, and that element is that Don Juan of Austria placed on a ship a copy of the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico which shows you how closely connected the Spanish Empire was then. So after the battle, to uh, commemorate this great feat, he gave the, uh, the copy of Our Lady of Guadalupe's picture 
to one of his vice admirals, a Genoese fellow named Andrea Doria, after whom the ill-fated luxury liner was named. Well, he put the uh, image up in a church on his estate, and it became what it is now, which was the center near Genoa of a huge local Italian devotion to uh, Nostra Signora de Guadalupe. And it's it's interesting because it's not quite, but almost separate from the Mexican devotion. Uh, and it's a very indigenous Italian thing now. So October the 7th, you've got Our Lady of the Rosary. October 11th, Our Lady of the Pillar slash Columbus Day. So October moves along quietly, happily. Oh, one thing I neglected to mention about Our Lady of the Rosary. Uh, it was actually extended to the entire world because uh, of a victory in 1716 against the Turks by Prince Eugen of Savoy, who we first saw as a junior officer at the Siege of Vienna, the Battle of Petrovadine in uh, what is now Serbia. This was a big defeat for the Turks and completed the liberation of Hungary. So, uh, October is, of course, the month of the uh, the month of the uh, Holy Rosary, and so you've got two months dedicated, really, to Marian victories against the enemies of the faith. Again, I cannot emphasize how much we need to pray to um, to pray to these. Uh, these wonderful, wonderful protectors that we have, especially now when we need so much protection. But as October moves along, what is looming in the eyes and hearts and minds of children and shoppers? You guessed it. Halloween. Now, there's a lot of controversy over Halloween. Um, and that's because it's got, on the one hand, very mixed origins, and on the other, because decidedly different groups have taken very decidedly different usages of it. Uh, first and foremost, it's important to remember that Halloween is the vigil of the Feast of All Saints, uh, which is, of course, the, the uh, first day of November. Now, being a vigil liturgically meant that there was fasting and abstinence on that vigil day, which is why to this day in Ireland and Scotland, one of the big dishes for Halloween is called Colcannon, which is basically mashed up potatoes and cabbage because it would have a meatless supper. Now, you had several things going on at once at that time of the year. The Eve of All Saints uh, was also seen as, in a sense, an extension of the Eve of All Souls. And in parts of Europe, especially the British Isles, but not only, you would have children go from door to door doing something called souling, which basically meant that they were go to house to house asking for refreshments, goodies, in return for praying for the dead of that family. Now that went out of fashion uh, depending on how and when uh, people became Protestant. 
But Halloween, because of its association with that, also became uh, associated with the idea of the dead, the ghosts, the fairies. This is the time of year when the veil between the worlds is very thin. People say that as though they know what that means. Uh, who knows what it means? I don't. But that was one of the one of the times of the year, like Candlemas Eve, Saint John's Eve, and so forth, where supposedly the denizens of the other world could uh, make themselves known, and it led to a lot of uh, in Catholic Europe. It led to a lot of uh, interesting games and practices. But we'll talk a little bit more about it and finish off our consideration of Halloween in the next segment because it is integrally connected to the first two feasts of November. See you momentarily. And we're back. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we left ourselves hanging at Halloween. Uh, one of the things that uh, unfortunately has spoiled the fun, and I do say spoiled the fun because uh, I'm, an, I'm old enough to remember and to enjoy uh, very, very much the uh, Halloween of the early 60s, the trick-or-treating, the bobbing for apples, the Halloween parties, the uh, the whole the, the whole ambience of it, the whole fun of it. Uh, and that was one of the great things about Halloween was that it was fun. The Halloween that I knew, of course, was a bit different from that of my father's day because trick-or-treating was actually fairly a uh, fairly new uh, device. And it was... It was done precisely to tone down what had become a very violent, in some places, uh, time of uh, vandalism. Because Halloween was seen as a time when you could do whatever you wanted, and people did. Uh, but through various means, trick-or-treating being one of them, uh, they got them off that. And I'm glad they did. Um, but... Uh, both neo-pagans, uh, Satanists, and Protestant uh, fundamentalists have decided to see in Halloween, which after all has Catholic origins, their uh, quote-unquote pre-Christian, pre i.e. pagan elements to it. Uh, but like Christmas, they don't... Uh, believe me, ladies and gentlemen, when you put up a Christmas tree, you're not worshipping Thor, despite what you'll hear. So too with Halloween. But, as I say, people have tried to co-opt it in recent years, and so a great way to deal with that is to return it to its original function. And that is to turn trick-or-treating into souling. How do you do that? Well, very simple. If you're a trick-or-treat-e, where the kids are coming to your place, I'll tell you what I've done every year. Put a little note 
uh, into each sack of candy asking for their prayers for my dad. And I've actually had, uh, as years have gone by, I've had families come back and tell me that they've done it. The other is, when you send your, your children out trick-or-treating, when they come back, before you let anybody have a piece of candy, make sure they, that, as a family, you pray for the repose of the souls of the people, uh, of the loved ones, the people who uh, gave, you, uh, gave you stuff. And if it, uh, it won't do them any good, it'll certainly do somebody some good, because as we know, God uses prayers to the dead, regardless of whether or not, uh, even if the person is in heaven where they don't need it, or in hell where it don't, won't do them any good. Now that having been said, at the stroke of midnight on Halloween, we find ourselves in November, the month of the holy souls, truly a magical time. Truly a magical time. All Saints Day commemorates all the saints who ever were and ever have been. And it was one of those uh, great feasts with an octave. All that's left of the octave today, since 1950-something, is that for the octave, you could get the uh, uh, plenary indulgence for whomever you choose by going to uh, pray in a cemetery every day during the octave. So that's very, very important to do during the octave of, uh, of all saints. Now, interestingly, in many places, uh, the evening of all saints becomes the eve of all souls. And in the traditional liturgy, uh, prior to the 50s, 60s, sometime rather, no, no earlier than the 50s, it was very, very interesting because the second Vespers of All Saints were immediately succeeded by the first Vespers of All Souls. And they were Vespers for the dead. So the, the Vespers of All Saints were extremely, uh, well, the vestments were white or gold. Uh, it's just a, a really triumphant feast of heaven. But then all that gets taken off and put on black. You've got the Vespers of the dead. And after that, people would go into the cemeteries and light candles. And that survives in a lot of places for here in Central Europe. In Louisiana, the Philippines, Latin America, a lot of places, uh, the the uh, commemoration of the dead on the evening of All Saints begins. All Souls comes, and there's a lot more, of course, in virtually every Catholic and some non-Catholic countries. Although it doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, theologically in Sweden, Finland, and Estonia. Uh, it does make sense theologically for Lutherans. Uh, the churches of Sweden, Finland, and Estonia have retained All Souls Day. So, uh, again, visits to the uh, cemetery. As we know, the, uh, the Mexicans and some other Latin Americans make a big deal of the Day of the Dead for All Souls Day. And it certainly is a very solemn time for uh, commemorating the uh, daily departed. Well, that octave day of uh, 
All Saints. Oh, wait a minute. Forgetting a couple. Can't do that. November the 3rd is an extremely important day. It's the Feast of St. Hubert, the patron of hunters. And like the harvest, hunting is a very autumn thing. So if you like to hunt, or even if you just like to eat the results of the hunt, uh, St. Hubert, you need to pray for. And of course, all over Europe and elsewhere, they have the Hubertus Messe, the Messe de Saint Hubert, the St. Hubert's Day Mass, where they have the, uh, uh, the music is provided with hunting horns, which is something to hear, I can assure you. This goes back, by the way, unless you think this is some sort of Hunter's version of a post-Vatican II guitar mass. This has been going on for centuries. And the, uh, in the Rituale, there's a special blessing for St. Hubert's bread, which is given to both hunters and dogs to eat on St. Hubert's Day. And there'll be a blessing of the hounds. It's, it's very impressive. Really, just a, a wonderful celebration of that great saint who uh, was a tremendous hunter. Went hunting in the Ardennes forest in Belgium one day. Was confronted with a white stag with a crucifix between his antlers. Uh, it was a Sunday and he shouldn't have been hunting. And the white stag admitted that he was actually Christ. So Saint Hubert, Saint Hubert, converted, became the first bishop of Liège. Uh, but he is the patron of hunters ever since. The following day, for the 4th of uh, December, or sorry, November, is St. Charles Borromeo. Uh, one of my name, name patrons, but definitely the major name patron of Blessed Emperor Charles of Austria uh, and a great reformer of the church in his day. Now, November the 8th, the octave day of All Saints is also, believe it or not, my birthday. So I'm very fond of it. But there are a number of interesting feasts. I've always had a great devotion to uh, St. Saint, Saint, uh, Michael, the Archangel. And I never really understood why, because I was born on November 8th. I had no connection to him, so far as I know. But it turned out that November the 8th is, in fact, the major feast of St. Michael in the Byzantine calendar. So... That made sense. But there's several other feasts that day, the Four Crown Martyrs, uh, and a recent, uh, a recent beatification, Blessed John Dunscotus. So, a few days later, in November the, uh, November the 11th, you have the Feast of St. Martin of Tours, Martinus. Now, like Michaelmas in England, where they would generally eat goose, they uh, also had uh, the the asters all over the place. They call the Michaelmas daisies. In continental Europe, it was Martinmas that was the day for goose, Martinmas geese. And so so-called because uh, when the people of Tours wanted to make Saint Martin bishop, he hid, and the geese pursued him and revealed his location. And so in this part of the world, they eat geese on St. Martin's Day and after. And I have to tell you, the martini gans, as they say, is just really delicious. 
But that aside, Martinmas is a great, uh, a great day of the uh, European and the Catholic calendar. It has, of course, a civil significance for uh, British and Commonwealth people, Americans, French, and Germans, because that was the day, November the 11th, 1918, the 11th hour of the 11th day that World War I ended. Uh, it's interesting that in the British Empire, Commonwealth, and the United States, the remembrance flower for the dead of the Great War is the red poppy because of the poem. In Flanders fields, the poppies grow between the crosses row on row. In France, it is the uh, Bleu de France, the blue cornflower. And in Germany, it's the Vergess mir nicht, the forget me not. And so in Germany, France, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, South Africa, India, uh, each of these flowers gets worn by their respective folk. And from time to time here, I've seen a mixed, uh, naturally growing combination of uh, poppies, cornflowers, and uh, the other. It's really quite amazing. Well, the last major movable feast of the new calendar in November is the Feast of Christ the King, as it's the last in October. Feast of Christ the King sums up the year, whether you celebrate it in October or November or both. The last feast, of course, is November the 30th, St. Andrew, patron of Scotland. So if you're Scots, be sure to go to a, uh, a St. Andrew supper. With all of that, ladies and gentlemen, the year comes to an end, and we are ready for Advent and the countdown to Christmas. So God bless you all, and we'll see you next week.